On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. The audience reaction was phenomenal. I didn't know what the reaction was going to be. I didn't even know how much of my music that they knew. I didn't know if they knew any of my music. I had never played in Cuba. So it was all a big experiment to me. I had no idea. It was a surprise to me. I went on last. So I go on stage and And then right into Big Shot. The crowd goes nuts. We went right up to the edge of the stage, which is what we wanted. We wanted to be a little subversive. Good night, Cuban. Don't take any shit from anybody. Spread over three days in Cuba, the Havana Jam 79 features Columbia recording artists alongside native musicians and bands. It was a monumental, historic event that hardly anyone knows about anymore. But Ernesto Juan knows the story, and he's been trying to tell it for the past decade. The Cuban-born journalist, documentarian, and translator became engrossed with the festival around the time of its 30th anniversary in 2009. Since then... He's been collecting interviews and footage with plans to release a feature-length film about the event. He's also spoken at length with one of the concert's biggest names, Billy Joel. And Ernesto has near-exclusive audio recordings of the performance that hardly anyone knew existed. Right before Billy and the band took the stage, Elizabeth Joel, Billy's wife and manager at the time, ordered Columbia Records personnel to turn off the audio and visual recording. But two bootleg copies exist and both found their way to Ernesto. Since then, he's been flying all over the world gathering more first-hand accounts and documents from an unprecedented three days of performances by American recording artists in communist Cuba. But the story goes well beyond the concert. In our own interview, Ernesto also talks about how Western music was villainized by Fidel Castro and his followers, but sought out by many others. He gives his perspective and memories of his homeland along with long-forgotten lore about the Havana Jam and striking up a friendship with Billy Joel. In this special episode of Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast, Ernesto Juan joins us as we dig deep into Havana Jam 79 and what life was like decades ago in Cuba. This was... Such an amazing conversation. The documentary has been a passion project of uh, Ernesto's for over a decade now. And I am really hoping that this is the year that it, that it all comes to fruition. It's an important story that really needs to be told. I, you know, I had been familiar with this project for a while. You know, it, it got me thinking about how much music is the language that connects us all. It's the universal language that even though our dialogue, our dialect, you know, our spoken language may not be similar, 
we can all identify with a melody and a, and a beat and a groove in the height of the bad relations between nations. You had American and Cuban acts coming together to play music for people. And at the end of the day, that's all musicians want to do is play for people. And that's the story that Ernesto's telling here. If you're familiar with the story of Billy Joel going to Russia, this is the prequel to that. Because so much of what we learned about what happened in Russia happened in Cuba uh, a decade or so before. And it's such a shame that this, this entire concert, this entire festival has been swept under the rug. Liberty DeVito mentions it a little in his book, but the information we got from Ernesto about the concert and about the environment around it uh, was so illuminating and so exciting that I think we just need to jump right into it. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation about Havana Jam 1979 with Ernesto Juan. I remember reading your first post where you mentioned that you had this footage and I was really excited to, to learn more about it. And this is footage that you shot yourself? No, no. I, I, didn't, I didn't attend the Havana Jam Festival. Uh, in, in 1979, that festival was a very private, uh, very, you know, it, it was an invitation event only. Mm-hmm. I only heard about it like uh, probably a year later. When you said you heard about it, like you didn't know that the event had occurred or that you just knew that the footage was out there a year later? Well, as a matter of fact, I heard many years later that uh, Billy Joel had also been uh, part of this Havana Jam Festival. Oh, wow. You have the audio. Why is there no uh, video footage? There is not even audio of the event uh, officially. Uh, this thing was organized by Columbia Records, by uh, Bruce Lumbaugh, who was then the president of Columbia Records. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, uh, when, when they started organizing this in 1978, and then when it happened in 1979, Billy Joel was the, the, the biggest uh, you know, act uh, for Columbia Records. So he was going to be, of course, the, you know, the highlight. It was, you know, he, he closed the event uh, on the third day. It was three days and, and they invited a number of different musicians from jazz musicians to Sasa, including the Funny All Stars and Billy Joel. Well, and Rita Coolidge, who was not part of Columbia Records, but Chris Christopherson, who was then her husband, was, was part of the Columbia Records uh, roster. And uh, Steven Stills, and, you know, and Weather Report and all these jazzes and, st- and stuff. So Billy Joel was supposed to be the highlight of the, of the whole event. They thought of the idea of, of producing a documentary uh, for the event to sell to any, uh, you know, American radio station and uh, American TV station who could be interested in, in broadcasting the event. You know, they could make more money uh, through all this, uh, you know, selling the documentary on, on TV. And the day of the event, uh, I don't know whether the musicians knew that it was the, the, the whole event was going to be recorded and videotaped. I believe they did. Because every single day there was a TV crew filming everything that was going on, not even uh, at the festival, but also at the hotel. So there was a crew, so they knew. But the day of the event, right before Billy Joel was supposed to hit uh, the stage, Elizabeth, who was then his uh, wife slash, slash manager, decided that, that no, it was a no-go. So he asked, uh, he asked the TV crew to, you know, to, to turn you know, the heads of the cameras up and just turn them around 180 degrees, and, and he pulled the plug. So he, he, she didn't allow that the cameras even had you know, power. And he went to the sound desk and he told you know, Billy Joel's sound guys, uh, no recording. Uh, Billy Joel didn't know this. He didn't know that, that Elizabeth was going to that, make that decision. 
So that's why there is no audio officially and there is no video. He was the only act that was not videotaped. Uh, being a Cuban, I had two friends who went, both were journalists, but went, one went independently and he took a video, uh, sorry, a, a cassette tape uh, recorder and he was sitting on the first balcony. So he recorded from the first balcony the whole show. And also a radio station, a Cuban radio station, probably uh, Columbia Records didn't know that they were recording and they recorded the show as well. So those are the two uh, sources of, of Billy Joel playing in at the Havana Jam. And those have been kept really under wraps all these years. In 2009, I started uh, for the 30th anniversary of the Havana Jam. I started organizing the, um, I was a journalist in Cuba at the time. A friend of mine asked me, listen, why don't you write something for the, for the 30th anniversary of the Havana Jam? And I said, uh, yeah, let me think about it. You know, I'm not a big fan of, of jazz or, you know, the other acts or Cuban acts that were present there. The only one that actually I cared about was Billy Joel. So I said, ah, let me think about it because I'm not too interested in this. And he said, listen, this, this was a historical event. It was the first time in 20 years that, that U.S. musicians and Cuban musicians, you know, shook hands and shared, shared the stage. So think about it. And I said, okay, maybe I will, I will do something. I, I, will, I will interview Chucho Valdez, Cuban star. I mean, he's, he's a piano player. And he was part of a Iraqera band. Iraqera was a band that was jazz, African, Cuban jazz, you know, that sort of music, avant-garde jazz. So I said, I'm going to interview Chucho Valdez, and I'm going to ask him what he thinks uh, about the Havana Jam. And the interview was so good that then I said, this is not going to be written on a piece of, I mean, on a newspaper, so I'm going, to ask, uh, I'm going to ask a friend to lend me a camera. So I borrowed a camera, microphones, and I started interviewing people, including Chucho Valdez again. Then a friend of mine said, I have a friend who has a friend who has a friend who has a <laughs> copy of Billy Joel's <laughs> concert. So I said, oh, 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 are you sure? He says, yeah, yeah, I have everything. So I started, you know, researching and, and I, I, I got a copy of the, I had a copy at, at the time of the two albums that, that Columbia Records released and Billy Joel was not on, on them. So I started researching and it's only because Billy Joel didn't allow his act to be recorded. Mm -hmm. So I said, I have, I have a gold mine in my hands. This is, this is something not only be, because it has, hasn't been released before, but because it's, it's Billy Joel in Cuba. Right. So I have, to, I have two different sources. Uh, one which is like, like listening to the Beatles at the, at the Star Club in Hamburg. I don't know whether you have heard that tape. Something I have like that, that on record, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> something like that. And the other one is yeah. pretty, uh, pretty decent because it was recorded by a radio station on, on mm -hmm. a mono tape recorder, but it's it's a decent recording. We found some set lists online, and it starts with "The Stranger" and "Big Shot" is the seventh song. However, we noticed that in the trailer you have in Billy's recollection, he comes on and says, "And I go right into Big Shot." And he told me the same uh, during the interview. Well, actually. Uh, what you hear, what you saw in the, in the trailer, it's, it's the interview. I talked to Billy Joel two times before that interview. I told him that, that the first recording had been uh, The Stranger, and I played him the, the tape, and, and he, he didn't say anything. During the interview, the live interview on camera, he said, and then we went straight into Big Shot. And they, <laughs> gun, 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 gun. Yeah. And I said, but what, what is he talking about? He already <laughs> knows that he didn't start with Big Shot. He started with The Stranger. So I said, all right, let me stop you there for a second. Let me stop you. I, I cannot let you continue because that's not what happened. You started <laughs> with a stranger. And he said, did I? And I said, yes, you did. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, uh, are you sure? And I said, yes. And, th and then I played in the recording again. Yeah. And he says, okay. 
And I said, can you say that again? But don't say that you started with Big Shot. And then he said, um, okay. And then we went, well, we, 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 we sang our first song. He didn't mention the title. Right. And he, he blew it. You know, he didn't. Because he wanted to sound like he wanted to sound like right. like he started like rocking and he rocked the audience and everybody you know went like wow no he started like in a very mellow he started in a it's mellow, a better mellow. story as a matter of yeah. fact it was the whole stage was dark it was total pitch black uh -huh. and all of a sudden uh, you know um, a spotlight hits his uh, you know he and then poof, and then it's Billy Joel sitting in front of a piano. And there is an ashtray with a cigarette, and then you can see the smoke, and then he's he's whistling the song, and and he started yeah. in the velo. You know, he didn't start with uh, with uh, Big Shot. No, that's that's not true. It's like it's like it's like tell, it's like telling Paul McCartney, no, you didn't write yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I have the tape. It was yeah. Ringo. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about, but I just wanted to confirm the set list. Uh, if I can read it off, do you do you have the set list with you? Beginning with The Stranger, Moving Out, Honesty, My Life, Angry Young Man, She's Always a Woman to Me, a Piano Fanfare, Rosalinda's Eyes, Just the Way You Are. Zanzibar. There is something interesting about Zanzibar that his, they started playing and, and, and the, the audio guy did something wrong and he gave a horrible feedback. Liberty DeVito had his headphones on and the feedback was right in just, and he just jumped from the from uh, from the drum set and he said what the fuck is this so he's they started playing it again so big show was number like 13. big shot after zanzibar yeah deep in the set only the good young yeah that's it the next one get it right the first time and that was the last song and then he he did an encore get it right the first time was the encore yeah that's the last song so only the good young was the last song of the concert and then he came back on stage and he did an act work. And the, and, the, and the best part is the end. So picking up your story again, you borrowed a camera and you, you had decided then that this had to be a uh, film. This wouldn't just be in writing. Started interviewing all the musicians, Cuban musicians that, that lived in Cuba at the time. Remember that this is 30 years after the Havana Jam. Some of the people who had been part of the Havana Jam from the Cuban side had, had already died. So I started interviewing, you know, the Cuban acts mostly, all, all of them, all the Cuban acts that were alive. Mm -hmm. uh, and then this is 2009, in 2011, I came to live here. I came to live uh, in Miami. I never pretended to interview the, the American side. It was going to be a Havana Jam with the Cuban people talking about the Havana Jam. Right. Uh, with no footage whatsoever. I didn't have anything. And there is a trailer. I don't know whether you saw it already. You, you've seen it already, which is the Cuban version with the Cubans talking about, you know, prohibition. And it yeah. was like they, like uh, it was, it, we had the enemy in our backyard, that sort of thing. So when I came here, I was a little bit frustrated that I hadn't been able to finish the, the, finish the Cuban documentary. And a friend of mine told me, again, friends, you know, friends are, <laughs> are the ones <laughs> pulling the strings. And a friend said, why don't you finish the, the documentary? Now, now you're in the, in the stage, you can interview the, the American side. And I said, all right, that's interesting. I, you know, I started a, a page, a Facebook page for the Havana Jam. I don't remember because this is like 11 years ago. I said uh, something like, uh, I'm a Cuban filmmaker and I'm, I'm, I'm just doing, putting together a documentary about the Havana Jam. If anybody knows anybody... Uh, and then I mentioned a few names, uh, Chris Christopherson, Rita Coolidge, uh, Steven Steele, the Fanny All-Stars, Billy Joel. I, th I think I did it like on a, on a weekend. 
And on the Friday, I got a call on my phone and it said private call. And I answered and it says, hi, this is Billy Joel. Uh, is this Ernesto? And I said, yeah. Uh, and he says, ah, I'm, I'm Billy Joel. I heard that you want to interview me for the, for the Havana Jam. How can I help? And I started thinking, who of my friends is pulling my leg? <laughs> who of my friends is right. imitating Billy Joel? And I said, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'd love to interview you. Uh, what happened that your recording doesn't exist? And he said, because of my wife, and that's why I'm not married. And I said, <laughs> this is Billy Joel. This is not a friend pulling my leg. This is Billy Joel. And he says, all right, how can I help? And I said, well, I'd love to interview you. And he says, how do you want to do this? And I said, well, I live in Florida. I live in Miami. Uh, so you tell me. And he says, uh, I when, when, when do you want to do it? And I said, can we do it tomorrow? And he says, no, tomorrow I will be, uh, I, I am in, I'm in West Palm Beach right now. I, I have to play at the Madison Square Garden tomorrow, Saturday. So maybe when I come back, probably on Tuesday after I come back, is, is that all right with you? And I said, is, is that all right with me? Yes, it's all right with me. <laughs> so he gave me his number and he gave me a place to meet. Uh, after I hung up, I told my wife, you will never guess who just called me. And she said, don't tell me that it was Billy Joel. And I said, yes, it was Billy Joel. It was the first one who called me. We, we met in a restaurant in West Palm Beach, and we talked a little bit about, you know, everything. He started telling me the story that his father had lived in Cuba in, like, in 1948. His father uh, went on a, on, a, on, a, you know, on a ship, uh, and they came to Cuba. They couldn't come to the United States because there was a quota. Uh, only a certain amount of Jews were allowed in the state, so they were not allowed in the state, so they went to Cuba. So he lived like for three or four years in Cuba, and he lost his virginity in Cuba. And he was, he, his father always told him about, you know, Cuban girls and how beautiful Cuban girls were and, and how, how nice it was to be in Cuba. And he was always you know, attracted to going to Cuba. So when, when Bruce Lundbaugh told him that, that this was happening, he said yes. He said he didn't think it twice. He said yes. Mm. So, so then they, when he starts telling me that, I, I just pull out my tape recorder and I start recording. And he says, no, 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 no. We are going to talk about that later. Let, let's, let's have lunch here and then we, we can talk. So we finished talking. Uh, what car did you bring? I says, I have a, a Toyota. I think I had a Toyota Corolla at the time. And I says, bring your car. I'm going to wait for you here in the parking lot. So when we came, it was my wife and, my, and I. He was on his motorcycle, you know, going around the parking lot. And he said, follow me. And we followed him all the way, like for 20 minutes to his house. It's funny because there was a time when I almost hit him from behind. Oh, wow. Oh, geez. He almost ran a red light. And I thought he was going to stop. And he continued. And I almost hit him from He doesn't know this. <laughs> <laughs> I almost hit him from behind. So we went to his house and it was just him and, and, and my wife and myself. Nobody else. Wow. So we had wow. a nice chat for about four hours talking about everything. I showed him all my document documentation about the Havana Jam, the newspapers, and the magazines, uh, the 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 Time magazine. I think it's the Time magazine or Life. I think it's the Time magazine where he's uh, sunbathing and and he signed and he signed it. I think I posted that photo of him showing the the magazine to, to the camera, the cover of Time. I think what was it? Maybe People. I don't remember now. Probably was People. Yes, probably was People. Yeah, I think it might have been People magazine. Where he's yeah. He's got yeah, the cigar. Kind of he's got yeah. the cigar. Yeah. 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 So then he said, All right, "This time we're gonna do it uh, on audio because I don't remember. Probably I, I will not remember many things." 
uh, but next time we're gonna do it, uh, you know, on, on camera. So that was a, that was an interview only on, on with audio, mm-hmm. and we talked about everything. And he told me about his dad, and he said that his dad has studied with Castro in Cuba with Fidel Castro. They were they went to, to, to the same school, and uh, wow. and he told me about Elizabeth wow. not allowing you know the, the his act to be recorded, and he was very upset about that with her, you know, because she didn't she didn't tell him that she was gonna do that. That yeah. she was gonna pull the plug. Uh, he invited me to see him play at the, at the Madison Square Garden like a few days later, and then we organized. Uh, we we scheduled uh, the the proper you know camera interview in, in in West Palm Beach, and and we did that. And so that's that's probably what you uh, what you saw on the trailer that it's uh, that I published online. And you said you were a fan of Billy Joel at the time, anyway. So it wasn't just uh, historical. Being Cuban. Uh, you would you would think that all Cubans are a fan of salsa and stuff, but but there was a portion of a big part of you know Cuban youth in, in the late seventies, like myself, that we followed uh, uh, rock music, mm-hmm. and there were there were a couple of radio stations from Miami that you could you know you could pick very clearly the signal in in Havana uh, on a clear day was like you know uh, radio uh, FM uh, AM radio stations like WGBS and WQAM KAY from Little Rock Arkansas. Uh, WLWY from uh, uh, from Key West, and you could hear all these uh, you know songs like like if I was living in Miami. So yes, I followed. Uh, I was I was a big fan of of, of America uh, Casey Case's American Top Forty. Every single weekend, I listened to American Top Forty. So I knew I knew who, Willie, who Billy Joel was because I was he was he was hitting the charts uh, mm. in 1979 when he came. Yeah. So yes, I, I I knew. I mean, even though I don't know his songs from you know from memory, I, I cannot memorize all his songs. But yes, I I, I like Billy Joel very much. Right. And I guess this question comes because when Billy went to Russia in the eighties, American and Western pop music had to be bootlegged. There was a you know there was, was a real embargo on it. With Cuba at the time, was there American pop music you know sort of officially in the country, or, or was it bootlegged and you had to pick it up off the radio? No. The main source of, of income of, of American music was through radio. The, mm-hmm. the most, uh, there were people who had uh, albums because their parents were either, you know, uh, flight attendants or pilots or maybe uh, diplomats and they could travel uh, abroad and bring all, those, all these albums. But in Cuba, there was not a, there was not a, uh, like uh, you know, like, like you could go to a to a record store and buy American music. No, mm-hmm. no, it was very much. I'm, I'm not gonna say that in 1979 it was prohibited. It was in the early. It was in the 60s and early 70s. It was totally prohibited. Mm-hmm. If you were caught listening to American an American radio station, you could go to jail. Wow. It was even worse than Russian. Well, wow. I'm talking about the 80s in Russia, yeah. but now we are talking about the 60s and 70s right. in Cuba. So right. yes, there was no, there, there was no. Sure. You couldn't buy a record, even though people had them, but you couldn't. It was not, it was not common. American music was considered uh, too capitalist and too, uh, you know, uh, and you know, long hair was considered uh, too extravagant. And you know, Cuba was a, it's a communist country, and Castro at that time uh, had right. the idea, and he, for many years, it happened like that, that that everything coming from the United States, even though you were singing love songs. Mm-hmm. They were prohibited. Things like the Beatles, for example, in the 60s. Yeah. They were prohibited. The, the Beatles were banned in Cuba for many years. For many years. And even though the, the Beatles were singing Give Peace a Chance, or General, Je- John Lennon was singing Give Peace a Chance, or John Lennon singing Power to the People, 
or the Beatles singing All You Need Is Love. Mm -hmm. No. And even though they were British, not American, they were singing in English. So everything coming from anywhere in the world in English was prohibited. However, there was... There were many bands, Spanish bands, Spanish from Spain, singing like Formula Quintas, you know, singing all these same songs in Spanish. You could listen to them every day on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that English music being banned from Cuba, did that inherently give it some more attractiveness that made it exciting? Of course. Everything that is prohibited, it's attractive. I'm not going to say that in 79, uh, we're talking about that prohibition, but the mentality was still the same. And, right. and even though at the time they were not selling albums on, you know, American albums on in, in Cuban record stores, but the mentality was still the same. They were playing Billy Joel on the radio, you know, on Cuban radio. They were playing rock music on Cuban radio, but no records were being sold at the time. There was the, 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 we didn't have a, an industry selling American music in Cuba. Mm. Well, it was the embargo or the blockade, whatever you want to call it, that there was no there was no trade between between Cuba and the and the and the United States. However, however, there were many albums from Billy Joel and Led Zeppelin. I, I had a, copy, a, a couple of those copies from Russia, Russian albums, because, really? because Cuba sent many, many students, young students to study at the university in Russia. Uh-huh. And all these people, when they came back to Cuba, they brought, you know, the whole collection of Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or Billy Joel in, 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 in Russian albums. Of course, Billy Joel singing in English, not in Russian, but mm. but it was it was a Russian copy right. of the uh, album. Now, would you guys make copies of those? I'm curious, or was it a situation where so and so had the copy and everybody went over their house to listen to it? Absolutely. Every, every time that somebody had an album, whatever it was, everybody was like lining up to to you know to copy to cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. But again, it was so easy to listen to American radio stations in Cuba that it was not necessary to have it on cassette. I mean, right. people had it on cassettes if you wanted to listen to, you know, a whole album of, you know, Billy Joel, The Stranger of 52nd Street. You know, if you want to have the right. whole album, yes, you could copy uh, that on, on, you know, on cassette tapes. Yeah. In my case, I didn't need to. I didn't need to because I, I, had, I had a friend who was a steward uh, at the time and he, and he traveled a lot to England and he brought a lot of albums the Beatles, which it's my number number one band, yeah. and I copied all those you know Beatles albums on on cassette tapes, uh, or any other artist like Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or Queen, which I followed even more than Billy Joel at the time. Yeah, it was a bootleg and a bootleg uh, industry in Cuba. Not that you sold it, but it was you know copied hand to hand from one friend to another, or or going right. to a party on on a weekend and every somebody saying hey they're gonna play. Uh, somebody has this this uh, this album, and they're gonna play the whole album in the at, at the party. So everybody who was a big fan of that band of that band went to the party, you know, to to listen to the whole album. Yeah, just one song after the other. There are many interesting stories about about you know. I, I interviewed uh, uh, Liberty. Told me interesting things like you know, like him uh, giving you know a t-shirt or or throwing cigarettes over the balconies to the Cubans. You know, <laughs> we're talking about a third world country. Uh, where, where, you know, uh, like T-shirts or jeans were not a common thing uh, in, in, in late 1979. No. Mm-hmm. He has this memory of, of, of him throwing, you know, over the balcony cigarettes or, you know, little things, chocolates, 
to the children or to the kids. They were not children, the kids or mm. the young people who were waiting right. for these Americans to give us some presents. And, you know, I gave him a shirt to, to a guy who then he learned later on that the guy had been arrested. And then they had to wear the, the T-shirt, you know, uh, in reverse so they couldn't see what the shirt said. You know, it's, it's, they were crazy days. They were crazy days. You know, the, the one takeaway, you know, he always talked about how great the people were there. That just how grateful they were that, you know, they were coming to play music. And he said it really helped put things in perspective. Anytime I was complaining about something, he's like, this was truly special to get to do this. And I think everyone involved was so glad they got to take part. The documentary tells it all. Tells, tell, tell, tells it all. I mean, the, the documentary, the, the documentary in Russia. Oh, Bridge to Russia. Yeah. A matter of trust, yeah. When I watched it, I said, this this was the same thing. That, this is exactly what happened in Cuba. Exactly the same. A few years later, uh, Russia uh, got rid of, uh, of that prohibition before Cuba. But we are talking a few years later. And you could see, and you could see that, that right. the people's reaction was, was absolutely amazing. And Billy Joel told me that when, when he played in Cuba, he didn't notice any difference in the reaction, in the audience reaction from any, sh- any of his shows in the United States. It was exactly the same reaction. And in the tape, you can hear people listening. Yep. Uh, you can hear people saying, shouting, a piano man, piano man, <laughs> or Rosalinda's eyes. You can see people saying, uh, and I said, uh, and why didn't you play piano man? I asked him. And he said, because I, I think it was too soft. Uh, we wanted pl- to play something as rocky as possible. We wanted to rock the Karl Marx Theater. And he did something similar mm-hmm. to what he did in Russia. Only that he didn't go off stage to, you know, to bring people who were standing in the back and brought them to, to the stage or near the stage. In Cuba, he just called them from the stage. And the guys, you know, the Cubans were, you right. know, they approached the stage and mm-hmm. he like, they, he high fived, you right. know, with them. And, and that they were, he says that there was security with uh, machine guns, you know, military guys. This is something that only Billy Joel remembers. I, I asked a lot of people and nobody remembers that there were military uh, personnel with machine guns, you know, like, you cannot cross this line. <laughs> right. I was curious, you had mentioned that when you started the documentary, you know, you, you were a journalist and you borrowed a camera. Did you have any experience uh, in film prior to starting this project? Yes, yes. I was a, I was a producer in Cuba uh, for... Uh, uh, or crews that from the states or from or I, I graduated as an English teacher in 1985, and since then I worked as a translator. You know, I, I double as a translator and as a, as an English professor. So uh, at, at a point, uh, I decided to to quit teaching, working as a freelance producer, you know, film producer. So I I had experience filming and you know doing interviews and working for documentaries. I had that experience. It's, this is a project that uh, started as a labor of love. It was only my wife and myself uh, carrying one camera, one very heavy tripod, lights, and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, it was, it was a hard time. I had a car. Uh, thankfully, I had a car at the time, so I could move around Havana, uh, you know, organize. And the first thing we did was organize who, was, who, was, uh, who could tell me a good story. Of course, the musicians had, had a good story to tell. And then who uh, right. of the organizers had a good story to tell? I found all the organizers from the Cuba Ministry of Culture, and, and they told me very good stories. And people from the audience, and musicians who didn't play, but well, they were able to tell me their 
perspective as musicians of what they were uh, hearing uh, and, and seeing at the festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, Columbia Records brought to Cuba all their gear, all their gear, everything. They brought every single little detail, all the microphones, all the sound desks, uh, everything. You know, speakers, uh, monitors, they brought everything. Lights. Cuba didn't have to put anything but, the, the, you know, the stage. The, yeah. the, just, just the stage, just the right, and, yeah. and the venue. Uh, and so they, they hired uh, um, a Shoko uh, to, to hire all the equipment. Shoko brought, you know, the technical part, and they also hired, like, pianos. And I think Billy Joel didn't play his own piano. I think uh, uh, the piano, the piano, I don't remember it was Billy's, Billy's but they hired a lot of equipment yeah. for, for the show. Yeah. Remember that we are talking about different bands from uh, Weather Report, including... Uh, Jaco Pastorius, uh, um, we're talking about uh, um, John McLaughlin, who brought, who, who he, even though he was English, he was part of, a, of the Columbia ro- roster and he was living in the States at the time. Uh, we are talking about the jazz all-stars. All the jazzers were under the, the Columbia roster and, and that demands equipment, you know, all these sax players and trombone players and trumpet players and all that. And they brought pianos mm-hmm. and they brought everything. So, uh, so it was. So wow. when when my Cuban friends w- were, you know, um, knowledgeable about sound, when when the first act was uh, Weather Report, playing like Weather Report played, and with and with lights and smoke, it was the first time that Cuba had ever seen. Uh, dry, uh, dry ice. You know the smoke that comes off the stage, and then and then it, it it just went down the stairs and into the first line in the audience. And when people started seeing the smoke, people started to panic. They thought that the, the venue was was in fire, and some of them ran. Liberty, Liberty can tell you about this. Liberty told me a very nice story about this, and uh, so it was I was it was out of you know the best equipment and the best sound at the time in a third world country. Right. So everybody was like, what the heck is this? Even, even the Cuban musicians who didn't expect to be heard so well, they sounded good. But you know what? Everybody learned from everybody because, the, for example, the, the U.S. drummers were, were dying to meet the Cuban drummers, percussionists. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And the Cuban guitarists were crazy to meet the American guitarists. And, and Billy Joel told me that this was the first time and the only time he shared the stage with people he would never imagine he would be, he would see on stage. He said, I shared the stage, which not sharing yeah. and playing together, but we shared the same stage mm-hmm. for three days with people I would never imagine I would even, even see in the United States. And they were there. Stan Getz, you name it. It's all these big uh, jazz stars. It's crazy. Yeah. It was like one, one American, one Cuban, one American, one Cuban, four different acts every day. So they started with uh, Weather Report, then one Cuban, then, uh, then another Cuban, and then Funny All-Stars. And then the second day, one American, one Cuban, one American, one Cuban. They closed with Ira Carey. And the third day, one Cuban, uh, Rita Coolidge and Chris Christopherson, then a Cuban act, and then Billy Joel. Wow. That's the way they, they did it. Wow. They were supposed to, the shows were supposed to last tops three hours. But they lasted sometimes five hours, and the shows finished very late at night. I mean, very early in the morning because they finished at two in the morning. 
So they weren't daytime shows. They weren't slated like noon to no, five. No, they were so at they night. They, weren't, they yeah. were supposed to start at 8.30, but they didn't start at 8.30. You know, there's always technical problems, especially in Cuba. The preparation between one set and the other, because, you know, you have to, dis- you have to uh, disassemble one stage and then, and then another stage for the next act. And it's, it was a complicated process. So the shows uh, went longer than expected. Uh, you know, Billy Joe was the last act and uh, everybody was waiting for him. Everybody was waiting for him. And even though he started late, yeah. everybody stayed in the venue to, to, to see Billy Joel. It's so amazing that there was this, you know, huge event and, and it's, it's so uh, underreported, you know, and the footage is out there too, and you've got it. And that's, that's so awesome that, you know, at least somebody's trying to shepherd this. The funny thing is that I didn't know that Billy Joel was in Cuba until years later. I knew that, I knew that Jacob Astorius was, was there because a friend told me he played bass and he says, I just went to a, to see a guy who played bass like like the Angels, and I, he just he didn't know the name, but he just mentioned the guy, and yeah. and and that's it. Uh, it was not the Cuban media didn't follow the event, they didn't promote the event because it was an invitation event, invitation only event. It was closed doors event. The mm-hmm. Karl Marx Theater has a, a facility for about five thousand, almost five thousand people, and they didn't sell the tickets. Uh, they they just sent invitations to members of the Communist Party. Remember, we were talking about American musicians in the 1979. American music was still considered too decadent and too capitalist for, for, the, for the formation of the Cuban, you know, the values of the Cuban youth, that they wanted to form this communist, uh, you know, mentality. And American music, especially rock and jazz, were considered, were considered too capitalist mm-hmm. for the likes of the Cuban people. So they didn't promote the event. Only a minor little square in the main Communist Party newspapers. And, and that, uh, that was it. And, and, and you know, they invited uh, the ministers, the mem- top members of the Communist Party. The good thing about this is that these people didn't know who, who were playing. So they gave the invitations to their children. And sometimes their children gave the invitations to their friends. So that's why many people, that's why many of the people who went were not members of the Communist Party or the parents. Uh, the tickets were gotten through a friend of a friend or, you know, the, the, or the aunt who was given in, in, her, in her office. They were, she was given a ticket and says, there is an event and I don't want to go. You want to go? And then she gave the ticket to her nephew. And, and that's how people went. But it was mostly aimed at, you know, the members of the Communist Party. They wanted to keep it in closed doors, just in case. And also, they believed at the time that Castro was going to attend. Again, remember that this is for... I'm still surprised what, why the Havana Jam took place, because, uh, because of the mentality of the time. There was something called ideological diversion in Cuba. And that was the worst uh, thing that, that you could hear. If, if, if somebody, like your teacher... Or, or the principal of your school, or the police, or you know somebody from the Communist Party, to, to, told you that, that they were uh, <laughs> diverted ideologically. That was a very bad thing. You could go to jail for that. If you if if, if you if you listen wow. to American radio stations and, and the police caught you, you you could go to jail. Literally, you could go to jail. Yeah. So this happened. Right. Even though American music was not banned anymore as it had been in the 60s and early 70s, you know, American music was still considered a bad influence yeah. because of drugs, because right. of long hair. 
Castro didn't like the, you know, in 1963, Castro gave a speech in, in, at the University of Havana and he said something bad against youth with long hair and guitars. He says that they were considered too feminine for the formation of, of, the, of, the, of the Cuban man. From that day on, remember, this is 13th of March, 1963. The next day, there was a huge witch, uh, witch hunt against everybody with long hair, guitars, especially, you know, uh, people who like follow, follow rock. And, yeah. and in this, in the same right. sack, in the same bag, they put homosexuals, you know, who, who had long hair or were too weak. Uh, and they were not strong men for the formation of the Cuban, you know, uh, society. So everybody with long hair, anybody with a guitar was bad. Was bad for many years, even, up, even until the early 80s. And then they started to open up rock bands. They didn't have any promotion in Cuba. Rock bands were underground bands, underground. They could only play in parties, friends' parties, and, but never in public. They, were, they never had a space to, to play, you know, openly on, on stage, on, on a Cuban stage. You know, with a lot of that mentality carrying over even into the 80s, like you said, it's surprising in a lot of ways that this concert happened at all. I'm still surprised why Castro allowed the, the concert to happen. But again, they try to keep it in closed doors. It happened, but right. nowadays you ask people my age, and they said, "Did Billy Joel ever played in Cuba? Are, are you are, are you serious that he played in Cuba? Not many, not many people nowadays. Four years later, know that Billy Joel played in Cuba. Right. Not many people know that this happened. Right. Not many people know that. When I did my my trailer for uh, for the, the, the in, in back in two thousand and nine, and I put it on the internet, people were tell, telling me that did that happen in Cuba? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Billy Joel came. I didn't know that. It's certainly an incredibly monumental thing, uh, him going there in his career. But, you know, the contrast of how the Russian tour was done, granted that was six concerts, but that was so heavily documented by his team, by every American news outlet. It was so heavily covered at the time that even though there were so many parallels, it almost is like Havana Jam just you know, because of the lack of coverage about it. Remember that this, the, the Russia concerts, concerts, because there were several, happened a few years later after the Havana Jam. But the mentality, and even though, like I told you before, even though the, 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 the Russian mentality opened up before it did in Cuba, you remember, don't like my audience. Why? Because every time that they put lights on the audience, everybody got quiet because they were afraid. That mentality, you cannot erase overnight. So even though even though Billy Joel was had been officially invited or he was officially uh, playing in, in in Moscow or Leningrad, whatever he played, the people wanted to go, but they didn't want the other people to know that you were enjoying the show. So in the dark, everybody was happy. Under a spotlight, everybody froze, and you know that he raised hell. Yep. Yeah, we've we seen he it. Kicked the piano. And <laughs> oh, he, yeah. He raised hell. He didn't like it because the mentality. In Russia, in Cuba, in Czechoslovakia, in Bulgaria, in all those socialist countries, we have been so repressed for years. We have been under so much uh, repression and persecution and that, that you cannot erase that overnight. When I came to this country in 2011, and sometimes I talked against the Cuban government to my wife, I would whisper in her ear whatever I was going to say. because, yeah. And all of a sudden I said, why am I whispering? 
I'm in the, I'm in the United States. I can say whatever I want. But that mentality, it's, 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 it's already, you know, it's in your veins. You cannot erase it. I'm curious, and this may not be a question that's, that has a quick, easy answer. It's easy, you know, for us as Americans to think of it as, okay, there was an oppressive government and then everybody underneath was oppressed. But then, you know, you say something like, you know, Castro says the long hair and the guitars are no good. Next thing you know, there's a witch hunt. You know, when it came to your average citizen... You know, what was the mentality like? Was there like a split between communists sort of on the block in your neighborhood versus the people that were anti-communist or just didn't like it? Was it a real split between just the government and the people or were there people, regular citizens with that mentality as well? Because I, I'm guessing that's who's going to rat you out, right? It's going to be your neighbor. It's not going to be a cop. Yeah. Castro was one of the smartest guys ever. Mm-hmm. He was able to get in, into the mentality of the people. And then before Castro, there was another dictatorship, the Batista uh, regime. Uh, Batista was a guy who he could, his police could go to your house and shoot you in the head in front of your family, just like that. And nothing happened. He overthrew Batista. Castro, you know what he did. He went mountains. He became a guerrilla guy. He came back. He went to Mexico. He, he just gathered a, a bunch of uh, uh, guerrilla guys. Uh, he raised money. He bought guns and he came back to Cuba to start a revolution. And then everybody was saying, all right, Castro is going to change this government. So when he took power in January 1959, uh, he promised that he was going to, you know, bring a a socialist revolution where everybody was going to have the same rights, where there was going to be no discrimination. Uh, The black people could go to hotels and the blacks and the the whites could share, you know, whatever. And, and, And people liked that because it was a beautiful idea that this guy is going to change all the suffering that we have had for so many years. But he started, you know, introducing, you know, evil. And, and people, people will still say, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's Castro. He's saying that he's going to, for example, the rice, Cuban families, they buy food uh, with a ration card. They give you a ration card. And in that ration card, that has changed a little bit in the last few years. But back in my day, they would give my, fam- my father a ration card. And in that ration card, you, you would be given, for example, five pounds of rice for the month and, and two pounds of sugar and one pound of black beans, a couple of beef steaks or some, you know, ground beef. And that's it. You couldn't buy apart from that. If you ran out of those supplies, you couldn't buy them again because that was what suppo- you were supposed to, to, to get, you know, from the government subsidized that is true very cheap right but you couldn't you didn't have he didn't give you any other means to buy more so then he started decreasing the amount of sugar and the amount of rice and people started you know adapting to that because he was so so clever that he started you know uh you cutting things that he was he had promised and at, at a point he said he said i don't remember what year he said in a couple of years we are going to have more income, family incomes than in any capitalist country, including the United States. And people said, oh, Castro is promising that we're going to get better salaries than in the, in the United States. It never happened. There were people, yeah. communists in Cuba, people were more Castro followers than communists in the, in the whole sense of the word. They mm. followed Castro blindly like, like an icon, like a god. So whatever he said, people said, oh, Castro said that. So people followed him. So whatever crazy idea he had, people supported it because it was Castro saying that. So there were some right. people that in the 19, in 1959, they were, uh, their properties were seized 
It, did, it didn't matter if you were a millionaire and you had a huge, huge mansion, mansion, they would come and take it away from you. If you had a factory or if you had a car dealer, a car, uh, you know, a, a, dealer, a, a car dealership, they would come and seize it from you. And, and they said, no, now this belongs to the people. And many people lost their businesses. Even if you had a little store, if, even though if you were a farmer who, who worked hard for 10 years and you were able to raise some money and buy a little grocery store in the corner of this town or city. Overnight, Castro came with his uh, uh, guerrilla guys, with militia guys, and said, from now on, this is not your store anymore. This store belongs to the people. So there were those people who, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, people started going against, against Castro because he was damaging their, you know, their economy. But the majority followed Castro blindly, like my parents. So I was raised with a mentality that I had to accept everything that came from Castro. For many years, I believed that until I became a teenager and, you know, I became older and I started saying, but this is not what I heard he had promised. And uh, like me, many people started thinking the same. Why he doesn't let me listen to the Beatles? If the Beatles are not saying anything against Castro, the Beatles are singing boy loves girl, lo girl loves boy songs or, or I love you, you love me. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah. So... Yeah. Many people starting to realize that there was something wrong. The old people continue following, like my parents continue following Castro's ideals, but not, not many people didn't. So there was a, like a kind of, you know, a fraction between those following him blindly and those who, who didn't like what was going on. And there was the other side with that, that were totally against what was going on in Cuba. Against, they didn't want to know anything right. about communism. In my case, I was not on that far right. right side. I was simply saying, but I want to listen to rock music. Why I cannot do it? Or, yeah. or I want to have jeans. Why I cannot right. go to a store and buy jeans? Or I want to stay in a hotel. Why I cannot stay in a hotel? So Castro prohibited that Cubans could stay in hotels. Can you believe that? Hotels were only for foreigners, not for Cubans. And for any foreigner in Cuba has more rights today than any Cuban national. We lost our rights. And after Castro passed away, the government was passed like, like, like this is a monarchy from Castro to his brother. It, it, there, were, there were no elections to vote for, for, for Raul. It was mm -hmm. just from now on, my, my brother is taking power. And when, Castro, when Raul Castro decided to leave power, he just appointed another guy. There were no elections, like a monarchy. Yeah. yeah. So nowadays there are many people like, I don't know whether you've seen there have been many protests in, in, on the streets like that people don't like what's going on. There is a lot of scarcity. My brother died uh, about a month ago of COVID in the hospital. Cuba has always boasted to be uh, a health power, uh, you know, a, medic, a medical power. We, have, we, 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 we can send doctors anywhere in the world to save people. And, and, and they are not able to save their own people in Cuba. And my brother died. He, he got COVID. He went to a hospital. And they didn't have oxygen to give him for two days. And my brother choked to death because he couldn't breathe. That's so horrible. I'm so sorry. This is happening. Die. This is happening now in Cuba. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Sorry, this, this has nothing to do with the Havana Jam or Billy Joel. You know, just, just like rock and roll came to you, this is... This is a window we've never had before, you know. Uh, you know, the yeah. there is something beautiful about about the the interview with Billy Joel. Uh, the first time I interviewed him, uh, I told you it was on 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 audio. The second time it was on camera. My bro my son, 
uh, was studying uh, Loyola University at the time, you know, violin. Mm-hmm. He started he started studying violin back in Cuba when he was a little kid. Yeah. I mean, in Cuba, Cuban musicians mm-hmm. are so good. Well, first of all, because it's in you know, our blood, you know, we are a mix between Spain and Africa, and we have the music from both sides, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but my son started playing the, the violin when he was like uh, six years old, and then he went to music school. And in Cuba, the music schools it's it's full time. So you go in the morning. And you, if you're studying violin, my son started playing in the school when he was in third grade, let's say eight years old, but he started wow. privately two years before. He, he has uh, violin lessons and piano lessons and music theory the whole morning. And then the whole afternoon, it's math, geography, sciences, you know, that sort of thing. It's every day. So my son started playing the violin when he was a little kid. So I told my son when I was going to do the second interview, he was studying at Loyola University at the time. He was a uh, uh, he was in second year, I think. And I told him, "Listen, we, I'm, we are going to interview Billy Joel, so you bring your violin that day." No, it's, he was 19 years old. He says, "Why am I going to bring my violin to the Billy Joel interview?" And I said, "Listen to your dad. Bring your <laughs> violin to the Billy Joel interview. I'm not going to bring the violin to the right. Billy Joel." I said, "You are going to bring the violin to the judge." <laughs> Well, I convinced him to bring the violin. He, I flew him from New Orleans to Miami, and we drove all the way to West Palm Beach. When we got out of the car, Billy Joel saw the violin and says, oh, you play the violin? And I told him, <laughs> I told you. So he says, all right, let's do the interview with your dad. And after the interview, I want to hear you play. And oh, my wow. son said, okay. Oh, that's amazing. So we did the interview. When we finished, Billy Joel light, lights a cigarette, and he tells him, all right, show me what you got. <laughs> my son gets a violin starts playing Cuba music and Billy Joel is smoking his cigarette and he said hey Alexis is uh, Della Rose sleeping she was six months old at the time Della mm-hmm. Rose uh, no she's awake can I go and play with Danny in the piano uh, in, the, in the living room and says yeah yeah go ahead so they go there and start jamming oh, wow. Billy Joel sat on the piano starts playing Cuban music uh, like the peanut vendor and uh, um different Cuban songs, you know, and, yeah. and my son starts playing, you know, following up and, 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 oh yeah, good. And, uh, okay. And let's play this. And, and there's a part that says, uh, do you know the, do you know the peanut vendor, Billy? And he says, what? I said, the, the peanut vendor, it's a Cuban song from the thirties. Do you know? I says, no. And my son plays. And Billy Joel starts playing piano. Like he was the writer of the song. and he plays the song like he was the author of the song (laughs) and my son starts playing and he says oh yeah good and and what else can he play do you know any 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 rock and roll and my son says yeah sure all right let's play and then he starts playing rock and roll my son follows and and do you know any jazz and my son says well i live in new orleans so let's play some jazz billy joe plays jazz and any classical music and my son says, well, I'm a musical, a classical music trained uh, musician. So everything I played is, is, is classical. How about this? And he slash playing, you know, I don't remember what song my son follows. And my son says, do you know this Tchaikovsky song, uh, the piece? And he says, yeah, sure. And they start playing all this like they've been jamming for years. Wow. And he says, oh wow, Danny, Danny, do you know any of my songs? And my son says, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know any of your songs. I know your name because my father has mentioned your name many times, but I don't know any of your songs. 
And it says, there is a song called the, the Down Israel Alexa that has a piano that was played originally by uh, Isaac Perlman. And, right. and it has a piano part. And um, it goes like this. And then he starts playing Gaga. And my son starts following with, a, with a, you know, with, with, with the Down Israel Alexa. And he stands up from the piano yeah. and says, hey, Danny, listen, this is January 2016. Mm-hmm. Danny, would you like to play with me at the Madison Square Garden next month? Oh, and we go like, what? He says, yes, I have a show uh, in, in, in February at the Madison Square Garden. Would you like to play with me? And my son says, yeah, what do I have to do? And he says, tell me yes. And my son says, yes. And he says, okay, since you, do not, you don't know any of my songs, uh, I'm going to give you uh, the album. And you look for the song called the Danish Alexa. I want you to play that song. You do the, the, the violin part, like, like, like Isaac Perman. You do that. Uh, and I'll see you next month. I said, what? He says, yeah, I'll see you. You're, you're good. You're good. So you're going to play with me next month. My son wow. is only 18 years old, maybe 19 wow. years old. We go home. We go like crazy. Was this a dream? What the heck is this? Is this real? Is he pulling a leg? And, and, and we flew our son back to New Orleans. And a few days later, I call him and say, hey, Billy, listen, uh, the, the, the show, it's in a couple of weeks. And, and we, you haven't rehearsed with Danny. And he says, Danny's a professional. We don't rehearse. So <laughs> we only do sound check, tell him to be on time. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the day before my birthday. On, on, of, uh, it was the 13th of February, 2016. My birthday was the 14th of February for Valentine's Day. So you, you'll be on time at four o'clock at the, at the venue on the side door. Your name is going to be there. You'll be on time. You do sound check and we do the show. And that's what happened. That day we flew to, to, New, to New York. We arrived at the venue and he's already doing sound check with the guys playing. I don't remember which song. I have all, everything. I have it on video. And wow. he said, uh, hey, where's Danny? Is Danny here? Yeah, here. I'm here. <laughs> so then it's already, they're already putting, you know, the mic on the, on the violin, mic in the, the violin and him and putting the reference headphones. And he said, all right, Danny, jump, jump on stage. He introduced him to the rest of the band. And he said, oh, this is Danny. He's, he plays well. He's going to play with us. The Danish for Alexa. All right, let's do the sound check. And then do, they, they do one take. And Danny was so excited that he was playing like he was Mozart. And, and, and he said, all right, how was it? And then he asked, I don't remember the name of the sound guy, his sound recordist. Brian Ruggles. Ruggles. Oh, Brian Ruggles. He says, hey, Brian, how was it? And, and Brian said, yeah. it's too much violin. And he says, hey, Danny, this is not your song. This is the Nadrish Alexa. You're playing just a little part <laughs> with a little solo, but this is not your song, all right? So you have to play less violin. So Danny plays less violin, and he says, all right, see you later. See you at the show. So we go backstage to, you know, to the dressing room, and they gave him the, the set list, and you're number eight. And you come after the song, uh, you know, like three songs before, you come to the side of the stage and, and, and you join us. I want to call you, you come on stage. And that's what happened. He called Danny. I don't know what you've seen that. It's, it's in my, it's in my uh, YouTube channel. Or you can probably uh, Google uh, Danny Juan, uh, Billy Joel, the Danish Alexa, and you will see a couple of uh, videos recorded from different angles. Yeah. So Danny played the Danish Alexa that day and, and, it was incredible, like, like, like he was part of the band. I'm going to invite a, a young man on stage. <laughs> He's a very talented musician. And so um, I asked him to come and join us here at the garden tonight. He came all the way up from New Orleans to, uh, to play this song with us. And um, I want to welcome uh, Danny Juan.
That's just a great story. How cool. Yeah, yeah. And after that, we, we, we remained friends. Yeah, uh, Billy Joe, is a, it's a great guy. Very great guy. Very humane. Uh, if, you, if you get to know him personally, like you go to his house and he buys pizza, he orders pizza, and then uh, we are in the kitchen uh, eating pizza and, and, and you don't grab your plate and you're eating the pizza. He says, hey, why don't you grab a plate? You're dropping pizza on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> right. And things like that. You know, it's, 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 it's a cool guy. Very cool guy. Uh, I, I had a, he, he invited Danny to see Sal Perman play in, at a venue in, in West Palm Beach like a few months later. Mm-hmm. So he introduced, he introduced, uh, oh, wow. you know, Danny to Zach and then, you know, we had a good time. You know, sometimes uh, you have this, you know, these uh, beautiful things that happen in your life and say, I don't deserve this. But, you know, God gives you those uh, opportunities, you know. Uh, a Cuban yeah. guy, for the first time, yeah. a, a teenager, plays playing with Billy Joel at the Madison Square Garden when where there are so many professional musicians who are dying to play, not with Billy Joel, to play right. at the Madison Square Garden. And, and, and all of a sudden, Billy Joel is playing with my son, a 19-year-old guy from Cuba, yeah. playing the Down Israel Alexa. Incredible. And I have to thank that. I have to give, you know to the Havana Jam and me doing the documentary. If I didn't yeah. interview Billy Joel, my son would have never played uh, with Billy. One thing that stuck out to me too, of you telling the story of, you know, the first time when, when you two were having lunch, he's like, let's eat and just chat. We'll talk later. He, yeah. he wanted to get to know you before you guys really dug into it. So I, it's, that was such a nice little anecdote that just kind of went by in passing, but I, I like the fact that he just wanted to be very personable and just get to know each other. It was just the three of us. We could have kidnapped him. We could have killed him. We could have done anything to him because it was it was just him, his two dogs, and my wife and myself just talking in the, in his back, you know, in in his backyard and you know on the terrace he has on the back of the house, just enjoying the beach and having a nice chat. And he was smoking a cigar, a cigar, and and I said, "Hey, what cigar is that?" And he said, "This this cigar is Canadian." And I said. Billy Joel, that's sacrilege to tell a Cuban that you're smoking <laughs> smoking right. a Canadian cigar. Come on, you, do you have any Cuban cigars? And he says, no, I don't have any. And I said, next time I go to Cuba, I'm going to bring you a couple of boxes, which I did. I, I, I went to Cuba and I bought, I bought in like five different boxes. And, uh, and he has a humidor, oh, nice. you know, and he says, hey, I'm going to keep them a humidor. They're going to last for a while. <laughs> yeah. A few months later, or maybe a couple of years later, I said, Billy, I'm going back to Cuba. You want more cigars? He says, no, I have enough. So he's, he's keeping them, you know, he's smoking one, he's taking his time, you enjoy yeah. the real the real thing. You yeah, know, after yeah. smoking so many Canadian cigars, you have to enjoy a Cuban cigar and make it last. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's talk about the documentary a little. Um, you had put out some announcements about it. What's the status of it right now and what needs to happen to, to bring it to fruition? Well, like I said, it started as a, as a labor of law. I, mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't want to get anything for, for this, but... When I when I came here again, the first interview I did in in this I made in this country was Billy Joel. The right. first American act I interviewed was Billy Joel. What a better start do I need? Yeah. After that, I started saying, "I all right, I am I am a, a, a Cuban filmmaker. I'm doing a documentary about the Havana Jam, and uh, I'd love to interview you. I know that you played in in Havana with this band, and and they ask, uh, who else have you interviewed?" I said, uh, Billy Joel. <laughs> but I said, all right, if this guy interviewed Billy Joel, it means that this, this is serious. So they have all told me yes. So I have, I have interviewed uh, almost everybody now from the different bands. 
from Chris, uh, Chris Christopherson's band, from Steven Steele's band, from Billy Joel's band, uh, with the exception of Doc, who sadly, you know, is no longer with us. Uh, uh, everybody from, from um, a lot of people from the Funny All-Stars and a lot of, well, uh, from Weather Report, there is only uh, 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 Peter Erskine and, and, and Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter is very old now, and, and I don't think he's going to give me an interview. So I have interviewed Rita Coolidge, I did interview. So I have interviewed almost everybody. All this production has been sponsored by myself, mm-hmm. which means a lot of money. Right. I have to fly to Monaco in the south of France to interview John McLaughlin for one hour. I had to fly wow. for one hour for, for one hour interview. Of course, I enjoyed Paris and I enjoyed uh, and then I went to Rome and, you know, but I, that, but I did this interview. Uh, I went, I flew, I just, I think I, my, my, I, I made a trip for about four or five days, but just one hour was to interview uh, John McLaughlin. I, I opened right. uh, a fundraising campaign, but, you know, I could only raise $1,900. Wow. Uh, $1,900 didn't even uh, cover the, my airfare air fare to Monaco. Yeah. So I'm in the process now that right. I don't have any more. I don't want to spend any more money from my pocket. So I'm looking for sponsors, mm-hmm. maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, an executive producer, a production company who would be interested mm-hmm. in, in, in helping me finish the documentary. I have a few more interviews to, to shoot, probably five more interviews to shoot with people that uh, can be, uh, can give me good stories and then uh, the, the edit and, and, and then just, just uh, find a, uh, a distributor and distributed the, the, the film. Yeah. When I started doing this in Cuba, uh, the Ministry of Culture gave me all their uh, photo archives. They gave me about a thousand fo- different slides, you know, photos that they took, Cuba, yeah. Cuban photographers. And uh, so I have, I have mm-hmm. a lot of photos from all the different acts. When I got here, I got in touch with Sony and they gave me, you know, access to the, the, uh, the photo archives of Havana Jam. And I... I have all those photos as well. In, in terms of photos, I have a lot. I got in touch with some of the uh, Columbia Records organizers. Uh, Bill Freston, who was uh, Bruce Lumba's uh, right-hand man at the time, he mm-hmm. gave me all the CBS archives, all the communication with Cuba, wow. all the photos they, they, they took in all the different trips they made from 1978 to 1979. He gave me access to everything related to the Havana Jam that he had from CBS. Yeah. Then I got in touch with another lady who right. was also one of the CBS uh, uh, organizers, also very close to Bruce Lumbal, and she gave me hundreds of photos uh, from the Havana Jam. I got in touch with photographers who were part of the Havana Jam. They gave me all their files as well. Ah, and then and then I found uh, I have access. I interviewed uh, James Lipton, who also mm-hmm. passed uh, like two years ago. And he gave me also a bunch of photos that he took because he was going to be the producer of the documentary that they were supposed to sell to, uh, to uh, U.S. Ah, US uh, TV stations. And he gave me, and Sony gave me two footage, of, a lot of footage of the event. Some of the different acts playing, uh, uh, you know, on stage, uh, you know, backstage uh, footage, a lot of very interesting material. Only that Billy Joel is not included. In, in any of that footage. There is no food, there is no visual evidence on, on video of Billy Joel ever being in Cuba. Are there any other photographs besides the one that was uh, on People Magazine? There are thousands of photographs. Oh, they have thousands. the photographs, it's not the video, okay. Sony has a lot of photos and I have a lot of photos that Sony doesn't have. Okay. Billy Joel in, 
at the beach. I, I, I have published, if you go to my uh, Facebook uh, page, uh, Havana mm -hmm. Jam 79, uh, you will see that there are many photos. If you go there and, you, and then you look for photos, you will see a lot of photos of Billy Joel at the beach. Uh, there is one very good photo of, uh, there is a human pyramid where, B <laughs> yeah, with I the band with and, the band, and, yeah. and uh, roadies and, and friends, uh, you know, it's a pyramid. I have, a, yep. I have everything. I have everything. The only thing I need is money to finish it. Yeah. This costs money. It, it's a production. And even though I started doing it with my wife, now I need support. I, yeah. I cannot move on uh, on my own. It, this costs money and I don't have that money. We certainly have listeners scattered throughout the world and we don't know the demographics of anyone who may be in a position to, to help get you uh, to that next level. But if, if there were somebody listening who would be interested in learning more about how they can help and assist, you know, financially or otherwise, what's the best way for them to get in touch? They can either go to my webpage, zudanproductions.com. They can get in touch with me through the, you know, the, the Facebook page, Havana Jam Facebook page. Uh, there is, I have a page called Havana Jam 79, and I have a group page called Havana Jam Appreciation Society. This is a in, very interesting story. We are talking about one of the most historical events, music events that has ever happened. It was the first time in 20 years that Cuba and the United States shook hands. Many of the musicians that took part of the, of the event told me that Havana was a, a, a change of their lives. Liberty, the Beatles told me that. And, and you, can, you can hear him say that in, in my trailer. He says, every time they ask him, which is the highlight of your career with Billy, he says, Havana, Cuba, the Havana Jam. Because it was an event where Americans would never think that they could go to Cuba and enjoy uh, a weekend in the, you know, at the beach, drinking rum or enjoying Cuba music or sharing the stage with all these musicians. The Havana Jam mm -hmm. is a very yeah. historical event I have so many interesting stories from people who are no longer with us. I started doing this documentary 12 years ago, 12 years ago. And probably about nine, 10 people that I interviewed are already dead. They died uh, after I interviewed him, which makes the, you know, right. their interviews even more interesting because they are no longer with us. They cannot tell the story anymore. Billy says why there is no audio he, he, he says it. Yeah. So everybody wants to know why there is no audio or video. Just listen directly from the from the mouth of the from the from the mouth <laughs> of the horse. And we, you know, we've also gathered over the years and talking with various band members and crew that, for better or worse, Elizabeth had a very tight lid on anything being filmed and recorded throughout her tenure managing Billy. So in a lot of ways, it benefited him, but there was clearly certain aspects like this where, in hindsight, it, it certainly yeah, seems like that wasn't it, the best even decision. Though, uh, uh, Elizabeth made a decision and Billy Joe didn't like it. He's, I have to agree with her in the end because we didn't go to Cuba to, for a capitalist venture. I, I was told that we were going to Cuba to play for the Cuban people. I didn't go to Cuba to make money. And nobody's right. going to make money from my music if, if, if that is what I was told initially. But this was going to be a cultural event, a, a music interchange, you know, music exchange, no, mm. not, not a capital venture. But then he says, well, she shouldn't have pulled the plug. She should have allowed them to film. And then later on, once we have the recording and once we have the video, we can make a decision, you know, in the office. But now right. there is nothing. There is no evidence of me in Cuba. Yeah. It's, it's gone. Now there you can't nothing. even... Yeah, but then I said, it. yes, there is something, Billy. I have that <laughs> recording. 
And he says, no, you don't have that recording. I says, I have, I have the recording. I have it. That's why I know that you didn't start with Big Shot. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much. This has been such an amazing uh, interview. We were excited just to hear about this show. Um, but, you know, talking with you has been such a pleasure. And, and, you know, so we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Guys, thank you very much for your time, for your, you know, for, you know, it's a privilege for me to be part of this because it's you, you guys are doing a great job. I have listened to a couple of your shows. I didn't know that they existed. If anybody out there can, can help me, you know, finish this movie, this is not about Billy Joel. This is about a cultural exchange between Cuba and the United States in 1979 that most of the musicians that took part of it then considered probably the highlights of their, you know, of their, of their career. Mm-hmm. It's a historical event. It's about something that really, it's, it, it's interesting, uh, not because of what happened, but because of what still has outlasted through all these years. People still remembering 40 years later, oh yeah, Cuba was, was great. Cuba, the Cuban people were, were absolutely amazing. Uh, Rita Coolidge told me, I, I was playing like, I was playing in Los Angeles, like everybody knew my songs. Uh, well, you know, there was a radio state. There were a couple of radio stations that we, we could pick up, you know, in, in Havana or in Cuba, uh, very clearly. And yes, right. yes, I, I would really appreciate it if anybody wants to get in touch with me. This is for you know, the fans who want to hear what happened or want to see what happened. You know, what happened to their idols, music idols, like uh, those followers of Weather Report or the, of, you know, the followers of Jacob Astorius. I have so many interesting stories from Jacob Astorius that I'm pretty sure that none of them have ever heard. Told by Peter Erskine, told by yeah. people who saw Jacob Astorius crying every night in Havana because he felt sad. Uh, Jacob Astorius, the Havana jam was the point where Jacob Astorius started acting crazy. You know, he was bipolar. Mm-hmm. And Havana was the, you know, was the spark that, you know, that set off his, the, th- the crazy things he did, he did right. later. Mm-hmm. Well, for those Billy Joel's fans who are listening now, Billy Joel told me in, in, in this interview in things that I'm pretty sure you have never heard. I'm looking for a production company who can help me finish this movie. Since it's a music documentary, there are, there are issues uh, that we have to cover financially, which is copyright, you know, and, and that's not cheap. And then distribution. Uh, for 12 years, it's been a labor of law. I need help from a serious production company who can let me, you know, put an end to this. What a great conversation. Once again, I learned so much more than I ever thought I would. Not only this concert, but the relations between Cuba and America and the political and personal climate among the Cubans and just what things were like during that time frame to hear from somebody from there who had a chance to speak with and go through all of this footage and documents surrounding this historic event. You know, we make a point of staying apolitical on this podcast. It's a very conscious effort on our part, but there's no denying that we live in very harsh and very political, divisive times right now. And I think it takes a toll on everyone. One thing that I found that brings me comfort is reading up on history. You know, what I get from that is the solace of knowing that, you know, we're not in this alone. We're not the first generation to go through these things. There is really something to 
to getting to the humanity of it all, to getting a, an understanding of what happened and why, you know, as horrible as it was, sort of selfishly, gives you a wider perspective. And, and just having that knowledge, obtaining that knowledge without your own political agenda, you know, without trying to take in this information and make it fit your own ideology or what you want to think just really just sitting back and listening to someone else talk about their experiences when you know that their experiences are so different from yours i really think it's the best antidote for a lot of the negative discourse that we see today it's not going to cure everything by any means but you know when you're talking about just trying to make sense of what's going on it's the best way to do it is just shut up and listen man all right and that's why you heard a lot of that because you know, we, we had somebody coming from such a different background with such a different lens on the world that as soon as we started getting in with that conversation, I knew there was a lot to be learned. And that's a big reason why I really hope that this is the year for Ernesto to get this out there, because I think it's something everyone needs to see. And that being said, we would love to see some support come Ernesto's way. Even if you can contribute 10 or $20, that certainly helps. Or if you know of anybody who's in a position to help invest on a larger scale and help bring this production to life, I think that's certainly a big thing that's needed at this stage in production because he has done a lot of the legwork and I, I, I think he needs somebody who can really help bring it on home. The best way to do that is if you or somebody you know is in a position to help uh, is to reach out to him. His website is zudhanproductions.com. So it's Z-U-D-H-A-N productions.com. And if you search that or his name, Ernesto Juan on Instagram, on Facebook, and then also there is a Havana Jam 79 Facebook page and group um, that has a lot of great uh, photos and stories about this event that and this uh, concert that he has collected already. So we would really love to see this come to fruition. And please reach out to him if you are in a position at all to help. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you found this story as insightful and inspiring as we did. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks so much. dancing solo down in Herald Square. Searching for you everywhere Though I'll never be there I know what I would see there I can always find my Cuban skies And Rosalinda's eyes the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Were they shot? 
shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.